Amen. You may be seated, church family. Thank you so much for joining us today. Whether this is your first time at Brent Bentry or you've been here every Sunday since the doors opened, we're here. So grateful that you are today here with us. And we want to welcome our online community. Welcome Bentry Online. Come on, those in the room, let's welcome those who are joining us. From wherever you are and whatever you're going through, we believe God's got something to say to you today. And by his amazing sovereign design, he has let us be connected to you from your home, from wherever you are. We believe God's got something amazing in store for all of us today. And my prayer is that we would be filled with hope that comes from only our good God. Stacey and I are in a, a great life group on Friday nights as we are pursuing God together with a group of Bentriers. And we find it to be such an amazing time of strengthening and encouragement. I hope you're plugged into some deep community here at Bentry as well. A few weeks ago, one of our life group members by the name of Preston Scott, he shared this story that I had to go and fact check to make sure it was true. And it was true, so it was really fascinating. In the 1950s, uh, researchers at Harvard University did a study. This is a little cruel, probably shouldn't be repeated today, but it's taught a valuable lesson. It's called the Hope Experiment. And here in this study, they gathered a group of rats and put rats in a pool of water to see how long they could tread water before out of exhaustion they gave up and began to sink. So they put these rats into this pool of water and all the rats on average swam, treaded water for 15 minutes before they gave up and started to sink. And when they did, the researchers would pluck them out of the water, dry them off, and let them rest for a few moments until then again they put the same rats back in the same water to see if there would be a different outcome. Would they swim the same amount, less or more, this time, the second time around? Now, how many of you would think that these rats would swim more than the first time? How many of you? All right, a few of us. How many of you think these rats would have swam less than the first time? All right, majority of you. I was in the same camp. Surely these rats will swim at minimum 15 minutes, if not less than that. But did you know that the second time around, the same rats in the same water treaded water, not 15 minutes, but 60 hours? Yes, go fact check me. 60 hours, these rats swam until they were exhausted and started to give up. The researchers begin to think, what caused the difference? Same rats, same conditions, same temperature, nothing changed. So what was it? And they concluded that it was hope that made them swim 60 hours. They knew they were not alone. There was someone watching after them so if they could just hang in a little longer, they could survive. And for 60 hours, they were able to tread water. It's been said that when you lose hope for the future, you lose power for the present. When you give up on hope for the future, for tomorrow, for the days ahead, you have just given up forfeited power for today. And I've got a feeling that some of you in this room and some of you watching, you feel like you're treading water. At home, you feel like you're treading water. In your marriage, things are crumbling. In your kid's life, in your single life, in your job, you feel like you're treading water. You feel like giving up. You've just received a diagnosis or some huge issue is brewing up. Maybe nobody knows about it but you, but you feel like you're treading water and you are struggling to keep faith alive and hope alive this morning. 
Well, First Peter has a lot to teach us, not just about hope, but about living hope. Living hope. If Paul, the apostle, wrote mostly about faith, the doctrines of faith, and if John, the apostle, wrote mostly about love, the depth of God's love, then Peter, you could say, wrote mostly about hope. Faith, hope, and love. Peter wants to remind us, and he wants to remind his listeners that we unpacked last week, that as these early Christians, sometime in the middle or later in first century, about 64, 65 AD, they're living all across Asia Minor. They're living under the fury of Emperor Nero. They're being ostracized, marginalized, misunderstood. They're being hated, and soon, as this persecution is ramping up, they're going to be tortured and even killed. So when they feel like standing down, Peter wants them to stand firm in the faith, in the grace of God and the hope of Jesus Christ. And he wants us today to be a people, a church, a community, a family, an individual that is brewing up with living hope. Last week, we got through the first two verses. So better luck this time for me to get through more. And in the first two verses, uh, Peter reminds these early Christians of their identity as chosen exiles. Chosen exiles. In relation to God, theologically they are chosen. But in relation to the world, sociologically they are exiles. Chosen exiles. And in the next passage we're going to look at today from verse 3 to 12, Peter would instruct them on how they embrace the suffering that comes by way of being exiles in this world. We realize our world is broken. We will suffer. We will have trials. We encounter one issue after another. So how is it that as Christ's followers, we live triumphantly through the trials of life? This section, verse 3 to 12, is actually in the Greek text one long sentence. It's as if Peter gets carried away by the Spirit of God and begins to give us a run-on sentence that goes on and on. But unlike my run-on sentences, his is divinely inspired and packed with gospel truth. So here's 1 Peter, reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 12. Just let these words sink in your heart. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance 
to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, but us. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Can we just thank God for his word today? Amen. Preserved for us, for our hearing, for our learning. We could just be dismissed right now and you would have been a blessed person for hearing these texts preached to you, just read over you today. Peter, in these passages, this one long sentence, gives us a panoramic view of the story of God. What has God been up to? What is he doing? Where is the world heading? He wants us to find our story in God's story. So by gaining perspective of where we are in this larger redemptive narrative, we would gain hope for today. But see, when you and I, in our Western minds, when we tell a story, we start from the past, go to the present, and perhaps we'll go to the future. Past, present, future. But that's not what Peter does. In this retelling of God's story, Peter actually starts from the future, then the present, and then he points to the past. So it's the inverse of how we tell a story. He starts with the future, then the present, and then the past. So today we're going to at least have time to address the future and the present, how we gain hope, living hope, triumphant hope, through the text that Peter has to give us today. First of all, Peter will teach us that our future is secure. Our future is secure. Notice verse 3 to 5 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire passage, by the way, is hinged on this opening line. Everything supports this line. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter begins this passage by praising God. Blessed be God. Blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose mercy, through which, whose mercy, you and I have been given new birth. New life. We are born again. The moment you came to Christ, you received new life. God did not repair you. He did not refurbish you. He actually made you new. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a brand new person formed in your spirit by God himself through his mercy. And here's some gospel truth that I hope you grab a hold of. That it's not good people who go to heaven. It's saved people who go to heaven. And it's not our goodness that saves us. It's not even our merit that saves us. It's God's mercy that saves us. His, great, his grace, not our goodness. His mercy, not our merit. N.T. Wright said it like this. That when a person becomes a Christian, God does for that person what God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday. What he did for Jesus is now being done to them. That they experience the power of resurrection life in the depth of their being. When you became a Christian, God did for you what he did for Jesus at his Easter. In the depth of your being, you experience new life. I pray that as a church, we would never lose wonder of the mercy of God. Of the grace of God. Of the goodness of God. 
that has made us who we are, that has saved us, set us apart. I've often said that a church with right theology, good doctrine, will have the most passionate worship. Because the moment you realize how good God's grace is, how deep his mercy is, how grand his kindness is, we will be moved beyond description deep within us. Worship would be the automatic, abundant flow of our heart. We will reflect. We will be thankful. We will shout unto God with a joyful sound. We will even be moved to lift our hands in worship and thank him for his mercy. May we never lose wonder of the mercy that's given us new birth. Peter gives us now, in following this revelation of new birth, three prepositional phrases that new birth leads us to. So we are born again, given new birth for three things, or into three things. We are born again, first of all, into a living hope, into an inheritance, and lastly, into a salvation ready to be revealed. Three things that new birth gives us, living hope, inheritance, and salvation ready to be revealed. Let me unpack just the first two for a little bit. We are born again, given new birth into living hope. Meaning that as a Christ follower, your whole life is energized by hope. Hope drives you, hope gets you up in the morning. It gives some sense of change in your life. What's the opposite of living hope? It's probably dead hope. (laughs) Dead hope is dormant. Inactive, unproductive, it does nothing. So living hope is active, productive, life-changing, life-inspiring. That's what hope here is. The author and writer Warren Wearsby, he said it like this. This hope or this living hope does not put us in our rocking chair. I know you love rocking chairs and I do too. But this hope doesn't put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace and on the battlefield and keeps us going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline. It's better than coffee, amen? Hope is not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline. Hope gets you up in the morning. Hope gets you to your workplace proclaiming Christ crucified. Hope on the worst of days gives you strength, gives you perspective. It's not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline. It produces something in us. It changes us. It inspires us for action. Worldly hope really is desire. Desire. Wishful thinking. Pie in the sky thinking. I could hope that it's cooler tomorrow in Texas. Could be a good desire to have. I could hope that the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Great desire to have. But Christian hope, gospel hope, is not desire. Gospel hope is certainty. Not desire, but certainty. If I were to tell you, I hope the sun rises tomorrow, you would not think I was crazy. And you wouldn't call me a prophet either. Because for every day you can remember for your whole life, guess what? In the morning, the sun came up. And because the sun rose every single day that you can remember, you can expect hope with great certainty tomorrow. Hey, tomorrow also the sun will rise. There's certainty that now produces your hope. It's not desire, it's certainty. And here Peter would say that our certainty of our hope for tomorrow or for today is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are born into new hope or living hope through 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because Jesus bodily, physically, historically rose from the grave, we can have living hope. That's the basis, that's the certainty of our hope. And here's what that means, church. We have living hope because we have a living savior. He's not dead, he is alive, he is alive today, amen. Come on, we can do a little better, better than that. He's alive. And because Christ has risen, one day we will rise with him. Death is not the end of our story. We have living hope because there is a living Savior. We are born again, new birth into living hope. And second of all, Peter says, we are born again into an inheritance. Into an inheritance, specifically in verse 4, we are born again into an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In our modern day usage of inheritance, inheritance is usually property or possessions we receive when a family member who wrote us in their will passes away. We get it post their death. But in the New Testament times, inheritance was actually an entitlement of property or possession or things that you were fully entitled to while they were still alive. So death didn't trigger inheritance. As soon as they put you in the will, whatever they owned was automatically already yours. That's why in the prodigal son story, the younger son will then cash in all of his inheritance while the dad was still alive. This is New Testament times what inheritance is. In the Old Testament times, inheritance was a promised land given to the Israelites. But through their sin and rebellion, this inheritance was defiled. It faded and even perished. But for us in the New Testament, for us in the New Covenant, inheritance is not land. It's life with God forever. Life with God that begins the moment you come to Christ. You are made new and all of God's spiritual blessings is yours for the taking. It's all yours. His mercy, his grace, his power, his strength is yours. And as you live through this life, one day you will be physically before God in heaven. And if you thought life on earth was fulfilling, satisfying in Jesus, there is even more awaiting you, a greater inheritance than you can ever imagine, waiting for your enjoyment in heaven. This is our inheritance. So this means that God, when you became a Christ follower, already wrote you in his will. He wrote you in his will. You have full access to God both here on this earth and until you arrive in heaven, you are fully embraced, welcomed into the life of God, the inheritance of God. But our heavenly inheritance is very different than any earthly inheritance. Our heavenly inheritance is unique, so beautifully different than earthly inheritance. See, earthly inheritance is triggered by death, but heavenly inheritance is triggered by the resurrection of Jesus. Earthly inheritance, you've seen this, tears up families. It divides sons and daughters. But heavenly inheritance creates sons and daughters. Earthly inheritance is about possessing belongings. But heavenly inheritance is already having a belonging that you could never lose. It's about already having a family with God that you can never lose. In terms of earthly inheritance, we strive, we work hard to be the favorite child of our parent, hoping that they would write us in the will one day. But in this heavenly inheritance, the Bible says, while you were still sinners... Christ died for you. He wrote you in the will, knowing you on your worst day, seeing every bit of your life. He wrote you in his will. 
He promised salvation, pursued you, gave you inheritance in him, seeing you, knowing you on your worst day. So that means that you don't have to walk on eggshells trying to keep the favor of God, trying to keep the love of God. No, because he wrote you in the will before you ever could prove yourself to him, that means he won't erase you out of his will. This is the inheritance of heaven given by grace to you and to me. This inheritance is not touched by death or stained by evil or impaired by time. It is imperishable, not fading. It is eternal. It is undefiled. But you know what's mind-blowing in this text? So we know that God keeps our inheritance protected for us. But verse 5 also says that not only does God keep our inheritance secure, he keeps us secure. You notice that in verse 5? Verse 5 where Peter says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So God keeps heaven secure. He keeps our inheritance secure. But not only that, he keeps you secure. Imagine tomorrow I go to my bank. Let's say it's Bank of America. I say, here's all my money, all of my assets. Keep it safe as a trust until in 60 years I retire and I can enjoy this inheritance. Keep it safe and they will do that. They will keep my assets, my wealth, whatever, property, all of that safe until I can enjoy it in retirement. An inheritance that they keep secure. But what if they in turn told me, we're not just concerned about your assets and your inheritance, we're concerned about you. And not only do we want to keep your stuff safe, we want to keep you safe. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the best bodyguard in the world to keep you safe. We're going to give you the best physician, dietitian, therapist, counselor, advisor, all that you need so that when you're ready to enjoy your inheritance, you are well, you are fit. So we're not just going to keep your inheritance safe. We're going to keep you safe. We're just as committed to you as we are to your stuff. I would love for a bank to do that. Good luck. None of them on this side of eternity will do that. I can propose it as an idea, but I'm imagining they're just interested in my stuff, not really in me. But here is what Peter says God does for us. Not only does he keep our inheritance, he keeps us. The God, by his power, through our faith, guards us until we reach the shores of eternity to enjoy all that he has already given us. This language is so key. Notice the partnership here. And this is what protects us from extremes of doctrines and theology sometimes. God, through his power, through our faith, keeps for us what's already ours. This is where God's sovereignty meets our free will. God by his power, but through our faith, through our willingness, keeps our inheritance for us. This is the beauty of security. By his power, through our faith, keeps us for what he's already keeping for us. So our future, my friend, is secure. What you have in Christ cannot be taken from you. So if our future is secure, then what does Peter have to say about our present? And here's what he says about our present, that our present has purpose. If our future has security, then our present has purpose. 
Notice verse 6 onwards. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith is more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter reaches back to everything we've just talked about, everything from verse 1 to 6. In this you rejoice because you're chosen, because God is keeping you. He's keeping your inheritance because you're being given new life. In this we rejoice, even though... If necessary, for a short time, we endure, we suffer grief through various trials. Even though, if necessary, that if necessary tells us that brokenness, pain, suffering, they were not part of God's original design for us. But yet, when sin entered the world, it broke our world and brought pain to us. If necessary, through various trials, that word various in the Greek means many colors. Many colors. The trial you are going through is different from the person next to you. We have a variety of trials. Trials of many colors. But if you hold your finger there and go to 1 Peter 4, verse 10, Peter uses the same word, many colors, to describe grace. Peter calls us to be good stewards of the varied grace of God. So notice the connection. Our trials are various. Our trials are of many colors. But so is God's grace. Many colors of trials and many colors of grace. And here's the good news. For every shade of your trial, there is a shade of grace to match it. For every color of your pain, every color of your suffering, there is a color of grace that God sends your way. He won't let you suffer without grace. Many colors of suffering, many colors of grace. If necessary, for a short time, we suffer grief through various trials. That's the good news, short time. Now, it doesn't feel so good to us, does it? Because that short time seems like a long time to us. That short time could be days, months, even decades. But Peter says, in God's perspective, however long your pain is, however long your suffering is, it's only a little while. In view of all eternity, in view of the inheritance awaiting you, the joy that awaits you, your pain, your suffering is temporary. For a little while we cry. For a little while we lose loved ones. For a little while we lose job. For a little while we are mistreated. We are treated unjustly. For a little while we suffer grief through various trials. But it is only a little while. I love how Pastor Levi Luska said, Levi said it like this, trials are temporary, but our triumph is forever. Our trials are temporary, but our triumph is forever. Life with God in eternity, being in the glory of God, around the throne of God, that's forever. So this world will bring trials. It will bring pain, but our trials are temporary, and our triumph is forever. That's what Paul would say to us in 2 Corinthians 4.17, that in view of the eternal glories of God, these trials, these troubles are light and momentary. 
our momentary, our light troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Here's how that changed my perspective. Let's say when I'm driving home today after church, I get a flat tire, and no one likes flat tire, even on a Sunday. It's worse than Chick-fil-A being closed on a Sunday. We don't want flat tires. I get a flat tire. It's unfortunate. It's an inconvenience, and it could ruin my afternoon. But what if I knew that tomorrow I'm going on an all-expense-paid two-week vacation to Hawaii? None of you would be feeling bad for me, would you? You can put up with the flat tire because tomorrow... You're on vacation for two plus weeks. Let's just say two years. So the beauty that's awaiting me tomorrow prevents from this situation to steal my day. Because I know what's on the other side of the night. Our pain isn't a flat tire situation. It's heavier than that, isn't it? Your divorce, your heartache, your diagnosis. The rebellion of kids, identity issues, those are painful things, far serious than a flat tire. But in view of eternity, in view of forever, in view of the glory awaiting you, even, as more, even our most grievous pains will be light and they will be momentary. As deep as the wound is compared to how high the glory is that awaits us all things in life, whether good or bad are light and momentary. Here's what Peter is saying. God doesn't cause pain, comma, but God also won't waste pain. Do you hear me? God doesn't cause pain. That's what the if necessary is for. God doesn't cause pain, but he also won't waste pain. When God's grace of many colors meets your trials of many colors, when grace is infused into your life, God assigns purpose to your pain. God will not waste the pain. And here, God's purpose for our suffering, our trials, is this, that our trials will prove that our faith is genuine. That our trials prove that our faith is genuine. Peter says that through trials, our faith is refined in the fire, like gold is refined in the furnace, gold refined in the furnace. Just like that, our character of faith is proven through trials. Peter gives us a beautiful metallurgy analogy here. It's profound. Here's how gold is found in its original state, in its ore state. Here's a picture of when miners unpack, uncover gold. Now, if you're wearing some jewelry and you have gold on, and I imagine your gold doesn't look like this. It's a little bit different. This is gold when it's originally found, covered, mixed with foreign objects, with impurities, with other metals and minerals all around it. But the miner, he sees the value of the inherent gold in the original state. And he sees the value and then he gives it over to a metallurgist who will then purify the gold. He doesn't change the content of the gold. He purges the gold. And what he does is he puts it in fire so everything that's not gold will burn away, will melt away. Silver is extracted at around 1,745 degrees Fahrenheit. Gold extracted, gold, it's pure gold, at about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 1,950 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So the metal, metal urges will keep the gold in the fire. Turn the temperature up beyond about 2,000 degrees. Everything that's not gold has been removed. He's extracting the gold, pure in its form, unpolluted, not mixed in with foreign objects. He didn't change the gold. He just removed everything that was not gold. And here's a picture of what gold looks like after it's gone through the fire in its pure form. No foreign objects, just the gold. Peter says that our faith is more valuable than gold because gold perishes, but our faith doesn't. But in the same way that gold is refined through the furnace, God refines our faith. He purifies our faith through trials. Here's what that means. God at times may choose to withhold the grace of relief. And rather, he'll give you the grace of refinement. He'll choose to withhold the grace of relief and will give you the grace of refinement. You're praying for God to take away the pressure, to bring relief. But God keeps you in the heat. He is refining you. He is purifying you. In the Old Testament, God did this over and over again for the Israelites. Look at Isaiah 48, verse 10. God is saying this to the Israelites. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That's where I have refined you. That's when I've purged you in the furnace of affliction. No one volunteers for that kind of a refining process. Right now, if you are placed in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, you are already righteous in him. Christ, with all of his beauty and perfection, is already resident in your life. You are perfect in Christ. But it's very possible that your faith in Christ is coexisting with foreign objects, with impurities, and it's mingled in with lies that you've believed about yourself doubt, with guilt, with shame. Perhaps your faith is intertwined with dependence on self or misplaced desires and worldly pleasures or trust in earthly things. So God allows you to go through a refining journey through the trial, through the pain, so that all of those things that are not gold would be removed from your life, from your faith. Those impurities that rob you of strength, that hinder the visibility of Christ in you, will be burned away as dross is removed from the gold. So he turns the temperature up, allowing trials to burn away the impurities. God is the ultimate metallurgist. He is. But here's the beautiful thing. A metallurgist would not let gold go through a refining process Unless he had already found value in the gold. This process doesn't change the gold. It just removes everything that's not gold. Because you are already gold to God. He allows trials to refine you. See, the enemy would tell you that you're going through the pain. You're going through the suffering because God has abandoned you. Because he has left you. Because he has removed favor from you. And you're wondering, where are you, God, in the pain? But God is saying, it's because I love you. Because you're gold to me. Because I see in you what you don't already see in yourself. Because I see so much value in you. I'm letting you be refined. 
I'm bringing Christ to the surface because your faith is pure. You are perfect in Christ. So through pain and trial and grief, he removes everything else in us that is not Christ. So it's a privilege to be refined, not a punishment. It is a privilege for God to go to work on us, for him to change us, for him to transform our lives because he loves you enough to save you, but loves you too much to keep you. As you are, so this great metallurgist goes to work on your life. Last night I snuck into my daughter's game room and picked up some Play-Doh. So I've got some Play-Doh with me today. Kids love Play-Doh. And if you're a parent like me, you hate Play-Doh. It is so hard to clean off from the carpet. Especially if there are glitter things on it. Please be considerate. Don't give me glitter Play-Doh for my kids. The kids love it. What they do is they take Play-Doh and they have a design in mind and so they begin to go to work on it. So it begins with having a design conceptually in your mind. But for that design to be a reality, what do you have to do? You got to put some pressure on it. You turn it, you twist it, you do whatever it takes. I've even seen Avery pinch a portion off like, like that and put it somewhere else to make a figure that she wants. You can't have the product without pressure. You can't complete the design without distress. So you twist, you thread, you needle, you put pressure until it is the design that you wanted it to be. And you know, if I want to make this Play-Doh permanent, this design, this structure permanent, you know what I would do? I would put it in the oven and bake it. Seriously, you can do this to clay and Play-Doh. I looked it up. This will intensify Play-Dates for your kids. Put it in the oven. Turn up the heat. And Play-Doh becomes permanent. And this kind of like what God does with us. <laughs> the reality is, it's fun for us, but not fun for the Plato. Plato's saying, stop it. But the designer is saying, I'm not done yet. The Bible says that we are like clay in the hands of the potter. God has a design in mind for your life. And the Bible says that design is for you to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus so he allows our life to do the work of refining us into that design until we reflect the image, the glory of Jesus perfectly. Until one day who we are spiritually perfect in Christ is who we are physically around the throne of God. Four words describe the life of Jesus, the life of a believer. We are taken, we are blessed, we are broken, and we're given. Jesus time and time again illustrated this in so many ways. We're taken, blessed, broken, and given. We are taken. We are chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. We are chosen. We are blessed. We are blessed with all inheritance. All spiritual blessings in Christ are your. You are infinitely blessed in Christ. But then you go through a season of being broken. Heartache. Broken dreams, confusion, and pain. We are broken just like Christ was broken at the cross. We go through a season of being brokenness. But this season of brokenness is so that we could be given. Just like Christ was given. Just like a kernel of wheat, unless it dies, it cannot bear much fruit. We are broken so that the fragrance that comes out of our life is pure. The wounds tell a story of God's grace. We're given to the world. Our faith is pure. Christ is more visible. 
It's not on us. It's not by our own power. It's not by our own strength we've made. It is the hand of God. And our journey of pain and suffering tell the story to where he gets the glory. And Peter actually says this very thing. One day you will be around the throne of God. And on that day, your faith proven through trials will result in glory, praise, and honor. That's where we're heading to. Trials, faith, the character of our faith proven results in glory, praise, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And on that day, the design is perfect, and it won't be until we reach that day. On that day, we mirror perfectly the glory, the image of Jesus. So here's what I want you to know. Suffering in the hands of God always leads to glory. Suffering in the hands of God always leads to glory. Whatever you're going through in your life, how hard it is, how difficult it is, how painful it is, how alone you may feel, you are unmistakably marching towards glory, towards the presence of God in eternity. Spurgeon said it like this. Read this. The steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. Amid the ashes of our pain lie the sparks of joy, ready to flame up when breathed on by the Holy Spirit. So this week, my prayer for you is not that you will be joyful for the pain, but that you will be joyful in the pain. The Bible doesn't command us to be thankful for all things, but in all things. So could we rejoice even in this, even in this season, in the between time of now and glory, where we are around the throne of God. May God's spirit breathe on your unanswered questions and pain and suffering. May he give you a lens, not just to look forward to the breaking in of a new day, but a revelation of a new way. Not just towards a new day that will come, the dawn that will come, but that it would dawn on us that we can live in a new way now. We've got a different lens to put on in how we view our pain and our suffering. It's in view of him. It's in view of the resurrection. It's in view of eternity that awaits us. Caleb sent me a song this week that I thought sung these words of Peter and this message in a more beautiful way that I could ever say it. So he's going to sing over you in just a moment. But I want to ask you, would you, just as you're seated, would you bow your heads with me? Can't predict or know your pain, your pain, your suffering. But I know that God's with you in it. Maybe you're here today or watching today and you're far from Jesus. He is giving you the gift of new birth, new life, hope. If by faith you would turn your heart to Christ. You can do that online. You can do that right in the prayer room, right after the service. But today, would you say, God, I need new life. I'm tired of trying on my merit. I need mercy. God is offering you that. In the midst of your pain today, will you say, Holy Spirit, breathe on my pain and reveal the purpose. What is it that you're doing? How are you refining me? Help me to hang on just a little longer. Because however long it feels, it's still a little while because of eternity that awaits us. So open your heart to him as we sing this over you.